Good morning. My name is Rick. Um, if I haven't met you, it's lovely to see you this morning. Um, I work here at Grace Church, and this is my promise to you. Um, I, this will be the only time I make mention of the fact that Brighton and Hove Albion have solidified their state in the Premier League for the next year, and I'm very, very pleased about that. So no other references to that. You'll be pleased to know. Ah, I've got at least one other here. Today we're going to be continuing our uh, series in 1 Peter. I'm going to be reading from chapter 3, verses 8 to 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, don't worry. The words will appear on the screen. But if you do, uh, why don't you get yours out and, and follow along with me so we can read this together. I'm reading from the ESV. Finally, writes Peter, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous." And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile you and your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, before we really get into today's passage, I thought it'd be good to have a little recap of some of the other things that we've been learning in this letter. This is a letter written by uh, the Apostle Peter to the early church. And uh, if we cast our minds back to before Easter, at the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about how they are the church, how God has brought them together. I'm going to read very quickly from verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you weren't a people, now you're God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, now you have received mercy. We are now God's people. If you believe in Jesus, you have been grafted into the family of God. We are the church. And then over the last three weeks or so, we've looked at how Peter encouraged the early church to be. He looks at our response to the government and society at large. He, he talks about how we are to be with our work colleagues, how we are to be in our marriages, our family. And then, just in case that didn't cover the whole spectrum of human existence, he then says, finally, or in this context, in summary, this is how you are to be. And he lists five qualities that help us understand how we are to be called. 
unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And a bit like my hand here, Peter has structured the sentence so that the middle one stands taller than the rest. It's the focal point of what he's trying to get at. Brotherly love. Which maybe to us sounds a little bit weak or confusing. Are we meant to love each other like we love our own brothers and sisters, which, if I'm honest, is a bit mixed. My own brother's here, so I won't go too much into that. But, you know, he's not always my favorite person. <laughs> but, that, no, actually, the Greek word, because Peter wrote in Greek, he didn't write in English, um, the Greek word that he uses there that we've got translated brotherly love literally translates as the love of those who are in the community of Christ. The church. The church. Peter's picking up exactly where he left off. You've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, now you're a people. It's almost like all the rest of the stuff, the government, your, your workplace and your spouse, that's all sort of in brackets. You're like, look, on the whole, this is how you're meant to be. This is what marks you out. You're a people who love one another. This is what the holy nation is supposed to be about. I think actually we lose some of that when we think about a nation. Because when I think about a nation, you know, I, I live in one, I live here, but it doesn't really have much impact on me. Uh, unless there's a sporting event and then I become patriotically English or British, depending on you know, who's representing us at the time. But really, it doesn't make a lot of difference to me that I live in the nation of the UK. I could live in America, I could live in Canada, Australia, South Africa, I'd probably struggle with the heat, but as long as I could speak the language, I'd just get on and do my own thing. That's how I see being in a nation. And that's not brotherly love, that's just coexisting. It's just sharing air. You and I aren't the church because we share air in the ministry on a Sunday morning. We're the church because we love one another. And then Peter gives us some other words that, that help us understand how we are to love one another. And they come in pairs. They come in pairs. So on this side and this side, you have a pair of words that each describes an emotional and a mental way of loving. How we think and how we act. How we think and how we feel, rather. So the first two, unity of mind and sympathy. To have unity of mind is to say, I understand you. We are united in our way of thinking. And what a thing it is to be understood. What a thing it is to be able to come and speak to someone else in the church and say, this is what's going on with me. And they say, yeah, I get that. I've been there. I understand. What you're going through is normal. So wonderful to hear about Roger and Sarah being honest about some of the struggles that they were going through. It helps us know that we're not on our own when we're told that we're understood. It helps us have hope, actually, that we can get through whatever we're going through because we see it in someone else's life. Yeah, I was there, but I'm not there anymore. And sympathy, 
Sympathy is like it. Sympathy is actually a word that's kind of been robbed of us. We tend to think of it as pity at the moment. Oh, tea and sympathy. Oh, that's terrible for you. Would you like some tea? Doesn't help anyone, does it? But rather, the dictionary describes sympathy as harmony of emotion between two people. Harmony of emotion. I know what you're going through. The church is to be a place where, where one weeps, others weep with them. Where another has cause for celebration, others dance for joy with them. But there's a practical edge to this as well. It's not just emotional, it's not just cognitive, but it's practical. Because if I know what you're going through and I know how you feel, I actually know how to help you and how to bless you. But that's actually taking us on to the, to the next pair of words, because Peter exhorts us to have a humble mind, and humble is another word we need to get clear in our minds. To be humble is not to think less of ourselves, but rather to think more of others. Humility doesn't say, well, I'm no good. I'm not worth anything. My problems are of no importance. No, humility says your problems are of utmost importance to me. And so I'll put my own stuff aside for a moment and help you out. And the emotional pairing that comes with this is to have a tender heart, or, or your, in, your translation of the Bible might say compassion. We are called to be compassionate. So the church isn't just full of people who, oh, I know what you're going through and that's sad and let's, let's mourn together. No, the church is a, a, a group of people who are moved by compassion to put other people's needs before their own. And again, this is practical, this is physical. Because when we do that, we give ourselves away. We give our time away. We give our money away. We have less because someone else has more. There's a cost to us. This is brotherly love. And it probably shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us because the church, the Bible says, is the body of Christ. The tangible, visible representation of Jesus on the earth. And not a group of people who are trying their darkness to be like Jesus but rather a group of people who have been filled with his very spirit, who have Jesus living with them, directing them, and instructing them their whole lives. And Jesus, Jesus is the embodiment of brotherly love. He is the perfect example of humility. Jesus didn't think, oh, you know, I think less of myself. I'm only God. It's not possible. He didn't think of his seat in heaven as inglorious or undesirable. He knew how precious it was to have perfect relationship with his father. And yet, his tender heart saw us in our distress, our loneliness, our godlessness, our desperate state, and he humbly 
put aside his own crown and came and lived among us. Like Hannah started our worship this morning. The true light coming into the world. He who is entirely God became completely man in order that he might have unity of mind with us. That he might understand exactly what we go through every day. And though he died so that we could have a relationship with our Father, so that we would know freedom, though he was buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven again, he is still a man who can completely sympathize with us. Jesus weeps when we weep. Jesus rejoices when we rejoice. This, this is brotherly love. We have a brother who loves us. And this is what's in view when Peter talks about the church. This is the royal priesthood. This is the holy nation. This is what we're called to, to love one another as Christ loves us. Cheryl and I have been experiencing some of this recently. You ever have one of those months where just everything, everything goes wrong? Yeah, it's just one thing after another. You're like, well, we've had it. Right, let's, let's think about tomorrow. Oh, there's something new. <laughs> we've, we've just had one of those months. And I don't, I'm not going to go into details. Actually, I know I don't have to because of the response of you guys, because of the response of the church who have listened to us, who have wept with us, who have cared for us and put this into action, who have set up meal rotors taken a huge burden off our day without us having to ask. That people have offered to babysit. Oh, take Nell for the afternoon, don't worry. Have some respite time, just you and you two together. We have been given so much financial gift that we are now giving money away. Because we, we go, what are we going to do with all of this? Our washing machine, our dishwasher broke at the weekend. Well, well that's fine. We can pay for that. It's outrageous gifting that we've been given. And it has cost other people stuff. The general response has been, look, anything we can do, just let us know. And it's not empty words. It's not tea and sympathy. I know they mean it because of brotherly love. People have put their own agendas on hold to care for us. Honestly, when the church is at its best, when it is emulating the compassion and sympathy of Jesus, when it puts other people ahead of itself, this place is heaven on earth. And you know it's a sign, the church, the church is the wonder of the age. <laughs> people are looking at it, and it's a group of different sorts of people that are only linked, to, only linked together by love. Cheryl and I have a friend who, uh, she was totally floored one day by a, a word that Cheryl used. She said that we were for her, which actually is a bit of Christianese jargon that we probably shy away from. But actually, it really describes what we're looking at in brotherly love. You, you, you can't be humble and united in mind if you're not for someone. It sort of fell out of Cheryl's mouth, but it, 
it totally floored her. She'd never heard anything of the like. And yet she didn't disbelieve us because she'd seen it in our church family. The way our Christian brothers and sisters related to one another, she was like, yeah, you, you guys are for each other. She's not a Christian. She's someone that actually that's known the prophetic voice of God in her life. She's also someone that can attest to miraculous healings, both in her family and ours, when we've prayed for them. And yet the thing that knocked her for six, that Christians are for one another. And by extension, her. Now, we don't have a lot of time to, to talk about this today, but this is actually what, what Peter says. In verse 9, he sort of takes a really sharp handbrake turn because he moves away from the church and starts talking about those who revile you, which is hopefully not the church. And actually, it's not. But, um, he, and his response is, yeah, of course, turn the other cheek. That's Jesus' teaching. But actually, is bless. Bless one another. Bless those who revile you. Because here's the challenge today. Why should meal rotors, babysitting, and extravagant financial gifting stop at the door of the church? If we're really to love our enemies, as Jesus says, that's a big call, isn't it? And as we go through the letter, go through the passage, Peter talks about doing good. Doing good. It's not something we talk about a lot. Because we're so, hallelujah, thankful that we've been saved not by our good behavior, but by Jesus on the cross, his death and his resurrection. We're saved by faith and grace alone. We sort of undervalue the fact that we're also called to be like him here. We're called to freedom. We're called to good works. And one of the reasons for that is that people are looking at us. People want to know what Jesus is like. So they look at the body of Christ. I, uh, I went to theatre school. Um, I trained as an actor. Um, and a few years after I graduated, uh, one of my classmates, he rang me up to apologise. He'd recently started having uh, faith in Jesus for himself. And he wanted to apologize for the, the jip that he'd given me um, while we were at theater school because of my faith and because of some of the life choices I made, particularly around the area of sexual morality. And now that he was trying to walk the same life, he was like, oh my goodness, I remember your example. It was so marked, your good behavior. It had impact on me, and now I, I see how difficult I made life for you, so I want to apologize. He was watching. But what I'm talking here about is, is persecution. I was persecuted for my faith. And I mean persecution with a small p here. Because I didn't mind most of the time. In fact, if anything, I was probably quite pleased that my faith had some impact on them, that they'd noticed that I was different. But it wasn't always fun. In fact, sometimes it was mean-spirited. I'm sure I wasn't always the best witness. But he saw something. Which Peter describes in verse 15 as the hope that is in you. Now some of Peter's audience were actually struggling with persecution with a big P. 
and he's going to come on to those in, in chapter 4. But actually, most of the time, he's the, in this passage, not really addressing that. He says, look, if you do good stuff, if you're zealous for what's good, who's going to harm you? Seriously. And, he said, and even if you get persecuted, if that's God's will, he's saying this isn't the norm, but you might come across some. And that's probably where we are in our society. We, we struggle with persecution with a little p most of the time. For me, it was about my sexual morals. But for others, it might be when they find out, actually, what you do for other people and how we love one another. You give how much? Why do you give it to those people? They're never going to pay you back. What a waste of time. Why do you spend your Sunday doing that? You know, you could be out with the family. 10%? That's how much you give away? Charity begins at home, you know. Which is as much to say as, don't bother with charity, look after your own. But I bet, in fact, no, I, I know, <laughs> that some of the people who say these things to us, they said it to me, are the people who, when you've been clinging on for dear life to Jesus in prayer, knowing that there is hope, you're going through something terrible, and you're like, God, how do you, come on, I need you, I need you to break in here. These are the people that say to you, I wish I had your faith. I wish I had your faith. I don't know how you get through it. They see the hope that is within you. I remember once I was going through something and, and someone said to me, you've got the patience of a saint you have. I have! <laughs> Praise Jesus. <laughs> I have. I'm marked by that. I'm marked by my hope. See, the thing is, Jesus is attractive. Salvation, freedom, joy, community, brotherly love. People want these things. And sometimes they'll ask. Sometimes they'll ask about it. I'm just going to read um, 14 and 15 again. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let's go on then. Tell me about this Jesus. It's always at the worst moment, isn't it? You're just not ready. I'm not ready. You're a Christian, aren't you? Why? Why do you believe it? I don't know about you, but these are the moments I pray for. Oh, God, give me an opportunity today. I want to share my faith with that person if I see them, or, or just anyone. God, open a door today. And then when the moment comes, my response is likely as not to be, uh, oh, I, uh, oh I don't, I'm, um, it's a bit complicated, really. <laughs> oh. Or maybe... <laughs> Maybe it's, oh, no, no, don't worry, I'm not trying to push it on you. This is personal belief for me. It's not, I, I, no, no, don't worry, you do, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. Or actually, it is quite complicated. Let me take you back to Genesis and explain the meta-narrative of the gospel. <laughs> I've done all of these. 
Or maybe it's just, I, I don't know. I just, I just believe it. These are all responses based on fear and not fear of God, but fear of man, which Peter says, have no fear of them. Maybe you're afraid that you'll get rejected. Maybe you think you'll look unintelligent, gullible, or weak. Maybe you've got an over-realized sense of responsibility that says, ah, this is my one chance. They can only become a Christian today. (laughs) Peter says, has no fear of them, but he also gives the antidote. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. How do you do that? Well, Jesus himself taught us, hallowed be your name, Father. Pray. You're my king. You're my God. You're the most important person in my life. Fear of God banishes fear of man. So when you're praying for that opportunity today, pray also, God, give me boldness. Give me clarity. But I communicate well. Just as I come to the close, some practical advice. Who's heard of the 90-second testimony which is about as, is what it sounds like. In a minute and a half, can you explain why Jesus is important to you, why he's real, what he means to you? In a minute and a half. Mainly because that's people's attention span. I know it's mine. It's one of the best tools in our arsenal. It is, as Peter says a preparation to make a defense for anyone who asks. Some other tips. If, uh, you know, put one together. If you've done it before, rehearse it in your mind later on this afternoon. If you haven't done it, take 10, 15 minutes out of your day, put one together. Here's some tips. Don't try and prove the resurrection. Don't try and defend the Bible. They do that for themselves. There's plenty of books that do that really well that they're not reading. They are, in fact, reading you. They have seen the hope in you. And your testimony, if you've got good conscience, can't be denied because they know you tell the truth. And the Spirit will be with you, attesting it to their heart as well. Gentleness and respect. It's also what Peter says. Don't turn into a Bible basher. Tell them they're a terrible sinner. Rather... This is how I think about it. There's a, there's a lady I see at the bus stop most weeks, and I say hello to her. That's about the extent of our conversation. Or, oh, bus is late today, something like that. And, uh, you know, we sit near each other on the bus, but never next to each other. I'm just, that day, okay, when I'm going to be reading my Christian book on the, on, the, on the bus, or some tweet or blog that, you know, gives me away, and she sat next to me, when she turns round... It's normally that way around, isn't it? Then says to me, oh, so you're a Christian. Oh, I used to go to church. Could you tell me a bit more about it? I want to be able to communicate that in a bus full of people, 20 other people who are probably listening. I mean, I listen to other people's conversations, so I'm sure they're listening to mine. (laughs) And in a way, that is gentle and respectful that won't cause offense, apart from the gospel itself. And, and, And maybe you do it like sharing some sort of baking recipe, or you get some flour and some icing sugar, and you mix it with eggs, and you can probably tell from this I'm an awful baker, but it's that sort of tone. 
This is real. I don't have to make bones about it. This is how you make brownies. This is what Jesus has done in my life. I thought about um, giving you my uh, 90-second testimony here, but I'm running out of time. So I'm going to be over in the find out more area at the end of the meeting. If you want to hear it, because you want to know about what Jesus has done in my life, I'm gladly tell you. If you want to hear it, because you want to know how to put one of these things together, grab me. Roger and I, Sarah and I will be over there. Hannah. I do want to finish, though, by telling you a story. I was, um, so I, like I say, I, I did act as a job, and I was once on tour for a month um, with just one other actor, me and her, in a van for a whole month, no days off. We had a lot of road time. And I shared my testimony in gentleness and respect. I have good conscience about that. I told her about Jesus. And she wasn't interested, not even a little bit. <laughs> Her belief was that if she asked for good stuff of the universe, it would give it to her. And that if you prayed to parking angels, that you would get a good parking space near the shops. <laughs> she had no basis for this, and she made no bones about that. She really wasn't interested in what I had to say about Jesus and God at all. And we were gentle and respectful and civil with one another. But I was under fire. Her persistent, flagrant rejection of the gospel persecuted me. A small p. And I finished that tour, not knowing if I even believed in God anymore. To just be told every day, oh, it's probably not true. And I praise God because... I got back and I was unemployed. So the only thing that structured my week at all was church on a Sunday. So I dragged myself along. I thought, well, I don't know what I'm doing here. But in the brotherly love, as people listened to me, sympathized with me, cared for me, I was restored. See, we are the royal priesthood. We are God's chosen people. And we need one another as we need him. Amen.